be standing for just a second. You know, I don't know if you were aware, but just a, a few days ago, earlier this week, you may have seen some things come across social media about 21 Egyptian followers of Jesus that lost their lives because they were followers of Jesus. And just the imagery of that and those pictures was pretty horrific. And I know it's real tempting for us to think, well, that's a million miles away and the struggle with ISIS is a political thing and we're spiritual people and I don't really do politics and I don't know any thing about American politics, but especially Middle Eastern politics, and, and I just am tuning that whole region out. But to see our brothers there, the only difference between me and them and you and them is geography, and that they lost their lives, and to, to read and hear that some of their last words um, was the Lord Jesus Christ is so humbling to me that I came freely today and I'm gonna leave freely. And so we're gonna take 21 seconds of just silence in honor of the 21 Egyptian believers who lost their lives. And in silence, we're not just standing here, we're gonna pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who didn't come freely to church on this Sunday. They came secretly came with hesitation and carefulness. But Jesus means everything to them and Jesus means everything to us. So we're gonna come alongside of them in prayer. They'll never know our names in the same way that we will never know their names. But in the kingdom, we can say we prayed for you and we were with you heart and soul. When it was easy in America, we know it was hard for you and we remember. So 21 seconds to pray for the persecuted church in silence and honor and reverence. not worthy of these 21. Their faith and commitment was beyond the realm of this world. So we say together as one people united with our brothers and sisters around the world, come Lord Jesus. This world is too hard. This world is too stressful. The anxiety is too much. The future is more than we can bear. So come Lord Jesus for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. Come, Lord Jesus, the spirit and bride today say come. Come. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. This is your first time. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. We are so, so glad that you are here. We hope it feels like family to you today. That's our goal. I want you to take your Bible... I'm just going to give you a few minutes while we set things up this morning to turn to the most overlooked page in the scripture. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that overlooked page is, but I just want you and your opinion turn to the most overlooked page in the Bible. We're in the middle of this series that we're calling Flourish um, because the scripture says, shows us that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, that you and I were not born into the family of God, but we were actually born aliens and strangers to the family of God. But when we believed in Jesus, we got adopted into the house, and now we are part of the household of faith. And once we're in the household of faith, Psalm 92 tells us that we shouldn't just be hanging out in the house, that we should actually be planted in the house meaning we should put down roots in the house of God, which we said a few weeks ago that one of the ways to know that you have roots here in God's house is that you linger, that you are not the first one to leave. And so I just challenged us all a few weeks ago, don't be the first one to leave this morning. You know, even if we make a big awkward line out in the parking lot, don't be the first to leave. And so as I was leaving, not the first, of course, because I have to win the competition, 
Not the last either, so I guess I didn't win. Uh, we were leaving. There were some people playing Frisbee out in the yard out here, and one of them turns to me and says, are we lingering enough for you? And I'm like, that's, that's winning. If you're bringing your sports equipment to linger at church, that's a win, and you get credit. And so we want to plant ourselves here. We want to put down roots. And when we put our roots down, Psalm 92, verse 13, continues to say that we will flourish in the house of God, meaning you will bear fruit. There will be something around here that you are able to say, I have a hand in that. I'm a part of that. I get the privilege of serving God and serving God's people in this thing. And I'm seeing God's power and will and might and strength as I'm doing it. So there's a progression. Aliens and strangers, household of God, planted in the house, flourishing in the house. We've talked about um, the, 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 the church and the fame of Jesus. We've talked about the church and um, family addition. We've talked about the church and our priorities. And today we're going to talk about the church and the word of God. So you've, you've had more than a few minutes to, to turn to the most overlooked page in the Bible. I turn to the table of contents. Anybody else turn to the table of contents? It's the most overlooked page in the Bible. See, actually at church, you would feel embarrassed maybe to turn to the table of contents. Like maybe somebody thought that you didn't know where one of the books of the Bible is. When the reality is, is, is that most of us don't know where some of these books in. Somebody says, turn to Joel chapter 2, and you're like, oh my gosh, Joel. Is Joel in the Old Testament? Is Joel in the New Testament? Is Joel one of the apostles? Is Joel like in the first half of the Old Testament? Is he in the, the middle of the Old Testament? I get kind of lost in all those names. Are, are we going to Haggai? Are we going to Habakkuk? Are we going to Hosea? Are we going to Zephaniah, Zechariah? We just get lost in there. But the table of contents is very powerful page in the Bible because it it keeps us from pretending. And as you look at your table of contents, just to make us all aware, what you're looking at is 66 different books written by 40 different authors in three different languages spanning 1,500 years, Genesis to Revelation. And all of us are at a different point in our relationship with these 66 books. Some of you know where all of them are. I remember on my very first day of seminary, that sounded a little pretentious and self-righteous, so let me just let you know that I dropped out of seminary. I didn't really, I I more like faded out. I feel like that's a more accurate picture. Uh, So, but my very first day, we had orientation. And so we're there, 300, 400 new students Um, And the dean of theology stands on the stage, and in his hand, he has two brand new, hot off the press, leather-bound, expensive, nice Bibles. And he says, I'm going to give these away to the first two people who can list all 66 books of the Bible in order. And he volunteers. So hands go up all over the room. He just selects two random people. They come up on the stage. He hands in the microphone. The first guy just starts with a blaze. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then it starts slowing down a little bit. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then just the wheels fall off when we get into Daniel and the rest of those minor prophets. And so the dean of theology goes, eh, not you. Hands the mic to the next person. Same, same thing. Starts off super fast. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Same thing. Gets kind of that minor prophet section and just loses it. And so he looks for another volunteer. And so this young lady raises her hand and she gets up and she grabs a microphone, and she starts singing a song. The song has the list of books in order. Now, if you grew up in church, maybe you're familiar with the song. And so other people in the the audience start singing the song with her. And it's like this real, like, sweet moment. But the dean of theology doesn't think it's that sweet. He actually takes the microphone from her and says, we are uh, students pursuing master's degrees in theology. We are not going to sing songs to memorize the Bible. And just this collective, like, what did I sign up for, just (laughs) fell onto the crowd. And I was horrified because I didn't raise my hand because I didn't even need to take a stab at it. I knew I wasn't getting through all 66 books of the Bible. And so the, the main thing I learned that first semester of seminary was on my drive home. It was about an hour drive, and I would practice the books of the Bible in order. I even had to come up with this weird acronym to get myself through uh, those minor prophets that I talk about zebras in there. I talk about hate in there. Anything that I could do to help me remember all 
all the books of the Bible. And, and maybe some of you, you, if I asked for volunteers, you could come up here and you could just blaze through them. Some of you would get about halfway. Some of you could do the New Testament, but definitely not the Old Testament. Some of you could, you know, maybe list a few random ones, but definitely not in order. And others of us, you're like, I don't even know right now if I own a Bible. It, it, it maybe is at home. My mom gave it to me a while ago, but I'm not sure it made it in the, the move. And we're all at different points in our relationship with the 66 books of the Bible. And that's a beautiful thing. That's exactly the way the church should be. We shouldn't just have people who could get up here and list all 66 books. And if we did, we would not be doing our job. So if you're like, I'm definitely not knowing all of them and I maybe don't even know any of them, then you have an important place here in the family. But these 66 books are special. They are more powerful than any weapon that exists on planet Earth. They are more influential than the most creative and persuasive orator. They are more specific than any handwritten note from a family member. And we're coming around the word of God today, but not as a collection of history, not as a self-help manual, because the primary purpose of the Bible is the revelation of God. The primary purpose of the Bible is not to make you a better dad, although you will be a better dad if you read it and obey it. The primary purpose of the Bible is not to give you a lifelong marriage, although you will have a great head start on a lifelong marriage if you read it and obey it. The primary purpose of the Bible is not to help you manage your money. It's not to make you a great leader. It's not to make you a great follower. It's not to make you a great uh, person in a moment of crisis. The primary purpose of the Word of God is the revelation of God. So as we come around the Bible today, what we're really coming around is the idea that we want to know God. We want to know who God is, and we want to know the kinds of things that He does. And He's given us this revelation. Now, God can reveal himself in a lot of different ways to you. He can reveal himself through nature. You can go to one of our national parks and go, oh my gosh, God made all this. This is amazing. And that can be a moment of revelation for you. He, he can send a friend to you. And that friend can give you just a very unique word, tailor, fit for whatever you're going through. And God can make that a moment of revelation. He can give you an impression through the spirit of God living inside of you. But he is primarily going to show himself to you and speak to you through the pages of the scripture. I don't know if you've thought recently about how this Bible that is on your lap ended up in your lap or on your iPad or on your phone, but it was a long journey. And I brought a timeline with us in the handout. Don't get used to these handouts, you uh, specific type of right-brained people. It was very hard for me to do this. I'm a left-brained person. I don't even know what that means, but I don't do lists and points, obviously. And I'm blaming that on one side of my brain. But you can see a timeline here. So let's just start with the Septuagint. 300 years before Jesus is born, 72 Israelite scholars from the 12 tribes of Israel come to Alexandria, Egypt, and they're going to translate the Hebrew Bible, what we know as the Old Testament, into the Greek language because most of the world was speaking the Greek language, including the Israelites. So from this point on, Hebrew really becomes like a religious language for the Israelites, but Greek is something that they're speaking consistently in their world. And now they have a copy of their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament in the language of the day. Jesus is born about 4 BC, lives, dies, is raised, ascends into heaven. And now the church begins to grow and the New Testament begins to be written. Letters are written by the apostles. They begin to spread. So about 100 AD, all of the New Testament has been written. Now it's not bound together in the form that you have it, but all of those letters existed. Ephesians existed. Colossians existed. First and second Corinthians existed. And they were being circulated among the early churches. 
So about 300 years later, you have a guy named St. Jerome who wants to translate the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now the New Testament has kind of been put together. He wants to translate it into the language that he is speaking the most, he is reading the most, and that's Latin. And so he translates the Vulgate. And the Vulgate becomes the official Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. You may be like, well, I'm not Catholic. Well, in this point, everybody was Catholic. And so that becomes the official Bible. But eventually Latin kind of fell out of style. And if you didn't live in Rome, then you probably didn't speak and read Latin. So what happened was now there were just very few intellectual and religious people who could actually read the Bible. And all of us common people didn't really have access to it. And we were dependent on this very few and select people to tell us what it said and tell us what to do. Well, in comes this guy named John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe says it shouldn't be like that. Jesus was for the people. God's word should be for the people. And so he gets some of his friends from Oxford and they start translating the Vulgate into their language, which was English. Now you think that everybody would celebrate this, that everybody would be super pumped. Now now the Bible is available to English speaking people, but actually those religious people, they didn't want to let go of their power. And so they were so mad at Wycliffe, that after he died, they exhumed his body and burned it just as punishment. Just to say to the world, this guy was was not doing something that was good. In fact, he was doing something that was evil, trying to translate the Bible for regular and common people. Because if the Bible gets into the hands of regular and common people, who knows what they will do with it? In God's providence, he, he, he brings an invention along. Some of you are in business Some of you are entrepreneurs. God uses those things to build his kingdom because a guy named Gutenberg comes in and invents the printing press. Before, the Bible had to be handwritten. So you can imagine there weren't a tremendous amount of copies. And you definitely didn't have a copy because it was expensive because somebody had to start with Genesis chapter 1 and write it by hand. But with Gutenberg's printing press, now the Bible can go to the masses. And people start looking at that divide between the religious elite Because even though Wycliffe had started translating the Bible, he didn't get all the way through. And definitely it wasn't distributed to everybody because it was handwritten. People start going, man, it's not right that there's a big divide between religious leaders and and this regular people. And so you have Martin Luther stepping into the plate, stepping up to the plate, into the picture, leading the Reformation. Building on his shoulders was a guy named William Tyndale who said, I'm going to translate the Bible fully into English, not from the Latin Vulgate, which has been in the hands of this one church forever, but I'm going to go back to those original languages. I'm going to go back to Hebrew. I'm going to go back to Aramaic, and I'm going to go back to Greek, and I'm going to translate it straight from there. And so William Tyndale is known as the father of the English Bible. Again, you would think that that would be celebrated, what he did, but actually he ended up losing his life at the hands of religious persecutors. A few generations after Tyndale, some scholars come together, building on his English Bible, they, they develop and translate the King James version of the Bible. How many of you, show of hands, have owned a King James Bible before? Most of us have, if you've had a Bible early in your life, because only until about the, about the, about the last 40 years did other Bible translations become more available. So the King James Version was the standard Bible for 300 years. And then new ones came along with more updated English because we don't speak in thous and these. Maybe you do, but I don't. And New American Standard shows up. The NIV, which is one of the best-selling Bibles in history. We even have even more modern translations that use regular speech uh, called the message and others like it. But it was a long journey from God's heart and mind to this Bible that sits on your lap. And you'd be like, well, that's great. Thank you for the timeline. I'm going to stick that in my Bible and have it for a while. But the question in, in, in my mind is, is, can I trust it? It's great that it took a long journey, and I'm really blown away that people gave their lives to get it into the English language so that I can read it. But how do I know that I can trust it? Maybe somebody's even challenged you on that before. You tried to encourage them with a the scripture. You've tried to 
teach them something or maybe even share your faith with them so that they can know Jesus in the way that you know him. And they're like, well, I, I don't, where, where are you getting that? And you're like, I'm getting that from the Bible. And they're like, well, I, don't, I have doubts about the Bible. So we're not going to answer all those questions, but just a few helpful things for us this morning to know that what we have in our hands is actually the heart and word of God. The first way you know that this book is special is that it's God breathed. It's God breathed. Second Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God or God breathed. That Greek word is only used once in the Bible and it's right here. It's the same idea that when God took dust and he formed Adam, he breathed into the dirt and Adam came to life. So this book that we have in our hands has been breathed out by God and it comes with life-bearing possibilities. When you open up a work of history, it's intellectual and it's good. It doesn't contain the power of life. You're gonna be intellectually changed and maybe then if you're intellectually changed, then something else can change about you, but there's something so powerful about the Bible that it doesn't need your mind to induce life change. It can bring its own life change because it's been breathed out by God. And so you know that it can be trusted. You know it can be trusted because when God breathed it out, he inspired servants. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible was written over a period of roughly 1,500 years by more than 40 authors in three different languages. He inspired these servants. Maybe you're like, well, how did he inspire them? First, he inspired them through dictation. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. But the idea was God said it, and Moses wrote it down. Dictation. God is speaking, and I am writing. It's one of the ways that God inspired his servants as he breathed out the Scripture. Also through compulsion. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary from holding it in, and I cannot. See, God inspired the message in their heart so much that they just had to get it out through compulsion. He almost forced it on them. But he also inspired through impression. The beginning of Luke's gospel starts like this. Inasmuch as we, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, that have, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this is how Luke starts his gospel. Uh, essentially, hey, Theophilus, it seemed good to me to write down an orderly account of what all these eyewitnesses have said. It seemed good to me. So God breathed out the scripture, but he breathed it out through inspired men. Some of those inspired servants were just listening to God and writing it down. Some of those inspired servants had an impression so strong on their heart that they were just forced to do it. And for others of them, it just seemed like the right thing to do. But God inspired these servants. Another way you can know that the Bible can be trusted is that not only did God breathe it out through inspired servants, but it's also been verified, which is great. The last New Testament letter was written about 100 AD, but as I mentioned, they weren't collected together and bound together in the form that you have them. They were circulated. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the letter ended up in Ephesus and they read it. And they thought, this is so good. We got to send it on down to this next town. And they would read it and they would take it in and they'd make a copy and they'd send it on to the next town. So you have all these letters being circulated. All these churches being built up by these different letters. But there were also other letters. There were other people writing letters. Some of them were just good advice. Uh, some were false and were actually 
trying to undermine the faith. So a question, 100, 200 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven, is how do we know which of these letters is actually Scripture? How do we know which of these letters is on par with Psalms and on par with the, the Genesis and the Exodus? How, how do we know what is Scripture and what is just regular letters? And so these early churches, they sent some of their best people into these councils, scholars, pastors, leaders, to prayerfully try to discern which of these letters that we have is the Word of God. Now you think, what were they doing? Were they just voting? No, they were using some criteria. And here's the criteria that they were using. Number one, was it connected to an eyewitness account? Meaning, is this gospel that we have, is it connected to an actual eyewitness of Jesus' life? This letter that we have, did it come from Peter, who was an eyewitness? Did it come from Paul, who was an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection on the road to Damascus? Is it connected, or, or was it from Jerry? You know, are you talking about the apostle Jerry? No, just regular Jerry. Well, Jerry's a great guy, great guy, got a lot of good advice, not an eyewitness account of the resurrection. So we'll just funnel Jerry's letter over here as something to read, but not online with the rest. Was it connected to an eyewitness account of an apostle? Number two, did it harmonize with the rest of scripture? Did it fit in with the thread of God's story, starting in Genesis through the Old Testament of God's people? through the Psalms and the wisdom literature, through the accounts that these eyewitnesses have get, had given to Jesus' life and death and resurrection, did it flow in that thread, in that story, or did it seem like it was outside of that story? Did it say things that were contradictory to what was already agreed upon as Scripture? Did it fit in? Number three, was there consensus among the early churches? Was this letter or written word used in the church and how prevalent was it? Was it just one letter that one church just really came around but the rest of the churches had rejected? Or like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, did they go to their original destination but then spread wildly and did it bear fruit among the churches? See, God inspired the Bible through inspired servants but it was also verified it's also errorless. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Here's what I mean by errorless. See, there are people out there who are going to try to convince you that what you have in your hands, there are some parts of us that God didn't mean. That that there are things in here that when you get to heaven and you're like, man, I, I didn't get it perfect, but I really tried to obey your word, God's going to say, well, you know, I hope you didn't obey this one part because I didn't mean that part. What we mean by errorless is that as God inspired these servants, what he wanted to say was in there. As those servants carefully handled this scripture, what God wanted to say to you was in there. As it was collected and bound and verified, what God wanted to say to you and wanted you to know is in there. And if you obey the word of scripture, then you are obeying God. If you are following the Bible, then you are following God. None of us will be led into error by listening and obeying this word. So if all those things are true, if God breathed this out through inspired servants, if it was verified, and if it is errorless, then it is naturally authoritative. If all of this is true, then we need to listen to it today and we need to obey it. See, I think most of us agree, just a brief sketch of history, say that the Bible is the foundation of Christianity. I think most of us would agree that, and amen, that the Bible is the foundation of the church, specifically this church. But can we all amen and agree that the Bible is the foundation of our personal lives? I think that's where the breakdown is for most of us. See, we live in a culture 
where what is authoritative is my positive personal experience. If I do something and I have a good experience, then that thing is definitely true. If I do something and I have a bad experience, then that is not true for me and I don't have to be a part of it. Our positive experience is naturally authoritative. There's a quote by Charles Darwin from his autobiography. This is what he says. I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all of my friends will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Essentially what he was saying is, as I read it and I didn't like how it landed on me, so I'm not gonna believe it. And this is history's way of getting around the Bible. If I don't like what it says, then I just won't believe in it. And if I don't believe in it, then it's not true. And if it's not true, then I'm not held accountable for it, uh, held accountable for it because it's not true. But before we, we just go, well, that's what atheists and agnostics and wayward sinners do, Christians are guilty of this too. Making our positive experience the authority in our lives. Years ago, I was working at a church up in the Metroplex and they were making a decision about who was qualified to lead in this particular church. So they called a business meeting and normally at a business meeting, four people show up unless something really controversial is happening and then the place is packed. And so I walked in, the place is packed and somebody lays out, here's what we're deciding today. Who's qualified to lead? And then they just open up the microphone for people to make the case. About 30 people shared and some of them would say, you know, look at these guys, they're serving the church and they're loving and the church and they're, they love Jesus and they're so awesome and, and everything about them says that they should be qualified to lead. Then you have other people standing up saying, you know, this other church down the road, they made the same decision and they used to be so strong on the Bible, but now they made this decision and they've gotten away from it. And, and um, now they're worshiping clowns and it's just a gone to heck. And if we do this right now, then we're gonna end up in that same path. And other people would stand up and go, I knew a church and they did this and the whole thing was awesome and God really started to move and this was a hindrance to them. And about 30 total people shared in, in about an hour, it was kind of a long time. And only one person, one sweet little old man stood up and said, I think the Bible says this about this thing. All Christians, all people who would have brought their Bibles that Sunday morning, all people who would have said amen to the word of God, errorless, verified, God breathed. But when it came down to make a case for something that they were, was important to them, what did they use? They used their positive personal experience as a reason and justification, or they used their negative experience as a reason for justification. But what we're saying today is that the Bible is our authority. See, it's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means that we open up the scripture and we want the meaning to exit off of the page and onto our lives. Eisegesis is the opposite. It means that we put our lives into it. We put our opinions into it. We make the decision what it should say and then we read our decision and our preference and our lifestyle into the Bible. And here's the problem with eisegesis. Because if you are practicing that, if you're just making your decisions based on your positive or negative personal experience, and then you're reading the Bible and telling the Bible what it should say, you're already on your way out of the faith. You're already exiting the church, even if this is your first time here. Because what's gonna happen is you're gonna wake up one day and you know, you're gonna go, you know what? I go to the Bible and I try to see what God says, but then I consult myself and this is what I say. And most of the time, like most people on planet earth and most people in the church, I'm just gonna do what I say. So if I'm just gonna do what I say, then I'm gonna start consulting God less and less. And then a little while later, you're gonna realize that you're not consulting God at all. And if you're not consulting God at all about how your life is gonna go, then why bother coming to church? Why bother being a part of the faith at all? But we wanna open up the word of God and ask God, what does it mean 
What does it say? And let it exit off the page and land on my life just the way that he intended it. But that's probably not our big struggle today. I I would guess that if you've been to Bayou City Fellowship about at least three times that you want to be here. And uh, every time that we gather together, we open up the scripture. And so I'm guessing that you are not anti-Bible. But I'm guessing very few of us actually read it this week. And the problem is, is that not that we don't believe it's true, we do. Not that we don't believe that God breathed it out and can speak to us. It's just that we don't want to read it. Or we want to read it, but we want to read it less than we want to do something else. And what I'm praying today is that God's going to just open up our hearts today for just a little inspiration. I remember when, in 1999, I was 18 years old, and somebody at my church gave me this cassette tape of a message from a Bible teacher down here in Houston, Texas. I was from Missouri. Her name was Beth Moore. And uh, fast forward a few years, I'm, I met her amazing and beautiful, wonderful, talented amazing daughter and uh, begged her to marry me for a long, long time. And she finally said yes. So I'm actually Beth's son-in-law. But in 1999, when I was 18 years old, I really didn't have any idea who she was. I didn't know that she was a big deal. I didn't know you could go into any bookstore and see like her face in the bookstore. That's pretty cool. And uh, you can't see my face on any bookstore. I didn't know any of that all at that time. I just had this cassette tape. That was my limited knowledge. I remember listening to it and when she talked about the Bible, it was different than how I talked about it. Because when she talked about it, it was like God was speaking to her through it. And I know that like technically that's what the Bible is, is God's word. And so God speaks. But with, like it was real when she talked about it. For me, when, she, when I talked about it, it was like theory. But like I actually believe that God was descending down into her living room and speaking to her through the pages of it. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, I got to get some of that. I don't know what that is, but I got to get some of that. That sounds more interesting than my version of, of what's happening here. I'm like, I wonder how, like, she, I wonder, like, was she born with that? Like, is that, like, you go to class for that? Like, how do you get that? Well, then she starts telling a story about how she got it. I'm like, man, thank you, Jesus. This is so amazing. So she's telling a story about going to this Bible study when she was young, a little bit older than me, but, but she was young and she was listening to somebody. And when he talked about the Bible, her heart exploded because that's not the way that she felt about the Bible. So she went up to him after class and was like, I don't know what you have, but I want it. And that's what, I, that's what, that's what I'm saying in my car right now. I don't know what you have, but I want it. And so I'm like, what did he say? Well, he said, next week, come back and I'm gonna bring you this bag filled with books. And so she came back the next week and he comes in with this brown paper sack. You remember brown, big paper sacks? Some, they're not eco-friendly. So now we use plastic, I guess, which is better for the environment. And, and so he brings in this big brown bag of books. And I'm like, I gotta know what those books were. She never says what the books were. I'm like, I gotta know. She wanted what he had and he had a bag filled with books and now she's got the bag filled with books and I don't have anybody up here in Missouri to give me a bag full of books. I gotta know what those books are so I can go and buy my own bag filled with books. But this is 1999 and my family was, we're late adopters. And so we didn't have cell phones and I didn't even really know where Houston, Texas was, but we had one computer in our house. You remember when people just had one computer in their house and it was right in the middle of the family room. And so I went home and I turned on the computer. Five minutes later, it was on. (laughs) And I click on the internet thing and we dial in. I'm logged on and I click on Netscape Navigator. You remember Netscape Navigator? And it, up it pops and I just type her name in and somewhere in the results, I get an address. You're thinking, oh, an email address. No, I didn't have an email account in 1999, a physical address. And I got a physical piece of paper and I wrote a letter and I said, dear Mrs. Moore, you don't know who I am. My name is Curtis Jones and I live in Springfield, Missouri. I've been listening to a message that you spoke called the crucified life. And in this message, you talked about a bag filled with books. 
And what happened to you is happening to me and I need to know what these books are. And I folded it up and I put it in an envelope and I put a stamp on it and sent it down here to Texas. Well, I'm thinking it takes four or five days to make a long way then maybe four or five days for her to get it and a few days later for her to respond. But about day 10, I start looking in the mailbox. Day 11, day 12, just waiting, 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 waiting. I'm still waiting. I have no idea what was in that bag of books. It's the God's honest truth. You know, she's in Seattle this morning on her way home, but uh, she comes to the second service. I should probably just bring her up here and ask her what was in that bag of books. Thankfully, you don't need a brown paper bag filled with Bible study resources to have your heart explode for the word of God because Jesus spoke into it long before there were cassette tapes in Luke chapter eight. Because I think most of us this morning are like, man, I want that. Oh, I want that for my life. How, how do I get that? Jesus tells this parable, verse four, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, which I love, you know, because sometimes we hear things on Sunday mornings or on cassette tapes, and you're like, that sounds so brilliant. I have no idea what that means. Sometimes I'll open up my Bible, and this is the God's honest truth, and I will get into some random place and go, I don't know what any of that just said. And the disciples were right there with us. They're like, tell us about this parable, because we don't know what you are talking about. And he said in verse 10, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, so he's going to explain it to him. The seed is the word of God, and the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So what happens is the sower throws out the seed, but it falls on the path. And the path is all beaten down so the seed can't get in there. And the birds just come in and they just eat the seed. And they said, moving on. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in the time of testing, they fall away. So it's rocky. The soil is shallow. And it goes in and it springs up, but there's no roots there. So when it gets hot or when somebody steps on it, it immediately dies. And as far as those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. So the soil was good there. It just had some things in the soil that shouldn't have been present. It had thorn bushes. And when the thorn bushes came, it choked out life. And as for those that are in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. How do I love the word of God and make it a part of my life? Two things. You plow the ground and you kill the birds. You plow the ground. You plow the ground because our hearts can become hard, self-centered, self-dependent. We come to church and we hear a message that's the opposite of that. It's die to self and deny self and live for something greater than yourself. But our hearts are so hard with that self-centeredness, self-preservation, self-dependence that the word just bounces off of us. 
plow the ground because some of our shallow is filled with rocks. It's not good. We go home and we say, yeah, amen to that. But by Monday, we've already forgotten it. It sprang up real fast on Sunday morning. But even by Sunday afternoon, it was gone. We plow the ground because there are thorns in this world. Worries and cares and money, fame, power. Choke out the word of God. You got a couple of things against you. And I have a couple of things against me. Self-sufficiency, self-centeredness breeds more self-sufficiency and self-centeredness. And if your heart is hardened to the message of Jesus through the word of God, then you need to ask for a miracle today. That years of a beaten down heart would go soft and kind, compassionate and honest today. Deliberate sin causes terrible growing conditions. If you're going to hear the word on Sunday mornings, but just go out and do what you want to do anyway, you become less and less open to God's word. Laziness is against us because we all desire the path of least resistance. And for me, TV is way less resistant than sitting down, slowing down, and opening up the scripture. But plow the ground. Keep your heart soft and ready, ready to receive. And kill the birds. Jesus said the birds are the devil that comes and steals the seed away when it lands on a heart that's not quite ready to receive. And let me tell you this, that if you are open today to a lifelong relationship with God's word, a passion for God's word, Satan will come for it. He will come for it. The scripture says that he is a roaring lion, roaring, roaring lion, prowling around, seeking whom he would devour. And let me tell you that if you go home today with a passion for God's word, he will roar. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you're like, I'm gonna wake up 15 minutes a little bit earlier to, to open up my day with the opening of God's word. When the alarm goes off, he will roar with a distraction. He will roar with, you need that extra sleep. He will roar with, you can do it later. He will roar with, you gotta get the kids ready. He will roar with, you can't be late today. He will roar with, there's probably 15 minutes extra traffic. He will roar when you come to the word of God. And here's what we're resolving today, that the more he roars, the more we read. The louder he roars, the more we read. The more distractions that come, the more we read. The louder those distractions, the more we read. And eventually you will be so armed up with the word that when he roars, you're covered. You're covered. And it won't be a threat. It will just be another obstacle that you easily overcome. The word of God, inspired, breathed, verified, errorless, authoritative, and holy, powerful. Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that it makes us wise for salvation. So God, we come to your word and we pray that salvation would land here at Bayou City Fellowship this morning because of the opening of your word. It made me wise for salvation, Father, and I pray it would make somebody else wise. just a spirit of prayer God's word breathed out says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God God's breathed out inspired word says that the wages of sin is death 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's word breathed out says that God demonstrated his great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's word breathed out says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. God's word says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. God's breathed out word says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's breathed out word says, behold, I stand at the door and knock and if anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And if you're here this morning in a spirit of prayer, you realize that is all for you, separated from God, but Jesus came. Jesus is the way. You're ready to confess Jesus as Lord. You can receive him today. We're gonna transition into our time of communion. So if those who are helping us serve would come and take their places as we wrap up this morning, I want you to stand to your feet. And two things I want us to focus on as we come to the Lord's table. Number one, that we would come with a soft and ready heart, ready to receive. So if your heart today is like a beaten down path or your heart today is filled with shallow and rocky soil, if your heart today is filled up with thorns and thistles because of the worries and cares and pleasures and riches of this life, then as you come today, you come asking God through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that you would leave with a good and honest and patient heart. And if you are ready to receive Jesus as your Lord, that you would confess him as not just a symbol of Christianity, but your path to salvation, then you come confessing Jesus today. You don't have to say magic words. You don't have to string together the right sentences. You just come saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. God, we pray you would make this time of communion holy. And more than holy, I pray you would make it effective in worship and honor to Jesus that it would bear fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name.